Hey, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK coming to you from downtown Brooklyn. On the show today, Councilmember Robert Cornegie joins us to talk about boosting Brooklyn tourism in places that aren't Williamsburg. We can be both consumers and business owners in this product life cycle and create an ecosystem in our communities that has everybody benefit. And then the crew is back, this time on the occasion of Ramadan, talking about Muslim diversity and the new Hulu show, Rami. In the future, every marginalized community will get a shitty diluted show on Hulu or Netflix that slightly resembles girls in order to appease the defunct masses in progress society. It's not news that Brooklyn is a global brand. There's a Dubai-based clothing company called the Brooklyn Cotton Company. The Brooklyn Soap Company is based in Hamburg, Germany. The Le Brooklyn pop-up at the Parisian department store Le Bon Marché Rive Gauche sold ball mason jars, which incidentally are made in Indiana. But when you think of Brooklyn the brand, you probably think of a bearded white guy who sells his own artisan kombucha and attachment parents his toddler, Zasper. If you're a hip-hop fan, maybe you also think of Biggie and Jay. But for the most part, the branding of Brooklyn has largely excluded people of color and low-income communities. Our next guest is a city councilman who represents Bed-Stuy and Crown Heights, two neighborhoods that are rapidly gentrifying but aren't on the Brooklyn double-decker bus tour route. He's here to talk about how Brooklyn's rising tide can be doing more to lift all boats. We welcome Robert Cornegie to Woman 2 bk Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being here. Let's get this out of the way. You are very tall. How tall are you? So, unfortunately for me, according to Guinness Book, I'm only 6'10". I don't know if you guys know that recently I got the distinction of being the tallest elected official in the world That's by right. Guinness. Congratulations. Right. I thought I was 7 feet. Uh, the measurements that they took over the course of an entire day averaged out to be 6'10". So I started the morning at 6'11 and 3 quarters and got an average measurement of 6'10". So I, I don't know what to say, whether I'm actually 6'11 really? and 3 quarters or 6'10". But according to Guinness Book, I currently hold the record as the tallest politician in the world at 6'10". So you had been going around thinking that you were close to 7 feet. Let's round up, right? Yes, absolutely. But now in black and white, you're 6'10". According to the average, yes, I I'm see. 6'10". Is it worth it? Is the honor worth losing those two inches in your mind? Only because I love Brooklyn so much and I was able <laughs> to bring that disti distinction to Brooklyn, I'm going to say yes. But I'm sure that I will, uh, when one of my children breaks my record or something, uh, be upset about that two inches. Now, you have had some controversy because some other upstart politicians are saying, well, I'm taller than that. Right. Well, I welcome them to go through the battery of tests that Guinness Book puts you through. And at the end of that, we'll see where they stand. Well. Right, right. So Maybe they'll enjoy. lose three inches. Exactly. We'll enjoy. <laughs> Um, so let's talk a little bit about the Shared Economy Weekend Initiative. Um, this is coming up in June. Talk to me a little bit about what it is and why it's important for you and your constituents. Well, first of all, I believe that communities of color have traditionally gotten products at the end of their product lifecycle. So when there's a new emerging industry like app-based, platform-based companies like transportation companies, Uber, Lyft, Juno, Zipcar, CityBike, or um, hosting companies like VBRO, HomeAway, or Airbnb, generally, um, as those companies grow, they don't benefit communities of color. Um, I wanted to see how this emerging economy could benefit minority communities and push us to the front of the line uh, for once. Technology-based companies in general haven't created the algorithms to be as discriminatory as every other industry in this country. 
And I think it's a good opportunity for us to get in and see if we can ride this wave uh, to some level of success. So, for example, in the past, we've done uh, app-based transportation companies have done discounted rides to bars, lounges, and restaurants in Bed-Stuy on Friday, retail outlets on Saturday, and cultural institutions on Sunday. And anecdotally, there's been an uptick to the tune that some businesses that are restaurant-based or bar-based businesses have had to hire one more barmaid or one more cook or one more. So it also is a job creator as well. But the idea that the narrative in this city is that either you support brick and mortar businesses or you support this new emerging economy centered around app-based businesses and that they're mutually exclusive is something that I want to dispel. Well, it doesn't seem like, say, a black-owned restaurant in Bed-Stuy would be in direct competition with a company like Uber, for example. It seems like there's opportunity for overlap. What has happened is uh, the inability for the city to harness or monetize the presence of these app-based companies has created a narrative that says that they're generally bad. I'm saying in minority communities, it's the exact opposite. Uh, For example, in my district alone, we have about 1,900 app-based transportation drivers, so that's Uber, Lyft, Juno, and 2,200 hosts, Airbnb, VBRO, so people who are using a a small portion of their immediate residence towards the shared economy. What we're doing is being ambassadors to the rest of the world, and we have the opportunity to introduce them to the businesses that we frequent in our communities and create an ecosystem that literally circulates the dollar eight times intentionally. So now, organically, that's happening. We want to harness it and make it a network and an ecosystem that, cre- that can create jobs. So you're right that there has been um, a lot of negative controversy around Uber, Lyft, Airbnb. For example, there was a strike by Uber Mm -hmm. and Lyft drivers. There have been studies that shown that more than half of Uber and Lyft drivers make less than minimum wage in their respective states. Airbnb, of course, has been talked about part of a gentrification problem where people are, instead of leasing out their, their extra room or their extra apartment to tenants, they're just using it to bring tourists in. How do you see this as part of Um, an opportunity to make the shared economy work for your constituents? Listen, I I think where it's against the law to use any of those app-based companies, and it's clear that there are distinctions that prohibit the use of Airbnb and have regulated it to the point that there are rules that you should follow, to the extent that you're following those rules and can earn some resources in a home where the prices are escalating, whether it's around taxes, property taxes, or, or whether you are a someone who is a senior who has limited resources who now can use a small space in your home to generate income and revenue, I think you should have the opportunity to do that. But I think the entire community should benefit from that. So it shouldn't be these one-offs or isolated incidents. We can actually create an ecosystem. So for me, this has a three-pronged approach. It brings back the integrity of communities because you can travel short distances in particular communities to enjoy the particular fare that's indigenous to that community. I think there's something to be said for that, right? So listen, a Starbucks on every corner isn't as beneficial as the local coffee house that where you're going to get a Colombian cup of coffee, which is much stronger, and those, <laughs> that, those kinds of things. I'd, I'd like to see us move back to that. It's great for tourism and hospitality. It's great for the brand of Brooklyn. And it's great to create an ecosystem that makes those people who were the least likely to benefit 
the most likely to benefit. And I think that's what my Shared Economy Weekend wants to demonstrate how you can marry this brand new emerging economy. Like there's nothing that isn't shared at this point. I've had an argument with my children, two arguments. One daughter was going to prom. And so I couldn't wait for her to go to prom. I'm getting ready to call the limo company. She's like, Daddy, nobody takes limousines anymore. <laughs> I, said, I said, what do you mean? She said, Dad, I don't, I don't want a limousine. I said, she said, it is environmentally unfriendly to have a car kids wait for me. Days. Kids these days. Out of, the, out of the mouths of babes. Right? So she said, Dad, why don't you just call one of the app-based car services, have them drop me off. If you want to be a big ball of dad, you can get me the XL. Right, I'll travel with my girlfriends in the XL. It'll right. be in style. Right. And then it'll come back to get me when I need to go. It's safe. You can track the exactly. app. Exactly. You know where she is on that route. Right. So, so we're moving away from a way of doing business in a city. Where are we going to be as minority communities in that product life cycle? Right. Where, where are we in that product timeline? We can be both consumers and business owners in this product life cycle and create an ecosystem in our communities that has everybody benefit, create jobs. I want to explore that, which is why, you know, I was very proud to be invited to MIT to have a discussion about the shared economy and whether or not it's truly a pathway to economic democracy. Mm-hmm. So it, it was a great discussion. Here's a pitch for your shared economy weekend. I think that on the apps, you should have like, you know, there's like an Uber Eats option. You should have sort of a lucky dip or spin the wheel option where you get to call a car and wherever that guy wants to take you, if he wants to take you to his cousin's spot, that's where you go. Because that's sort of the problem when you like, you know, you have to know where you're going in order to hail a ride-based app service. So that that is an awesome idea. and, And hopefully... It won't cost me to use it. <laughs> um, but w- one of the greatest benefits to going to uh, an institution like MIT to have this lecture mm. was, first of all, it was graduate students and professors that I lectured in front of. And all of them either had app-based companies that could enhance this shared economy model and this weekend. By the way, they invited me there because they think it's a model that's replicable in underserved communities around the world. Sure. So there were people there who had proposals already for products similar to what you're saying that could enhance that experience. While I thought I was going there to, to lecture, I learned more about what we can do from younger folks and academics around this who don't have a stake in it other than from a social justice perspective. So we touched briefly on how one criticism of Airbnb, when done improperly, is that it can displace people. But you actually um, introduced a suite of 17 bills that was just passed by the city council that aims to prevent and reduce displacement. Can you talk to me a little bit about what these bills will change and why it's so important right now, especially for your communities? Right. So, So one of the bills I introduced is about buyouts. So what's happening now is in gentrifying communities, people are being offered buyouts to leave long-term, sustainable, affordable housing units. Sure. Uh, when, if you leave, sometimes they can jack the rent up. You know, it can be taken off the market as an affordable unit. Someone came to my office who took a buyout, $10,000. They thought that was a lot of money. Mm-hmm. That wasn't even the first and last month's rent for them to move into a new place in the area that they were familiar with. Wow. And had they been advised that any unit you take after this one is going to be luck. four times as yeah. much... And, you know, what the market, going market rate was, they had no idea and were displaced legally. So that's a legal displacement. They signed a document that said if you take this money, you'll move in a certain amount of time. My bill says that you have to give full disclosure about market rents 
and also about comparables in that area before someone signs and takes a bio. So there's another check that they have to say that I read and understand. Sure, that informed there is. consent. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, so the suite of bills was centered around that premise mm-hmm. that people are being displaced and landlords are being somewhat unscrupulous by using every legal discourse or recourse that they have to do that. That's legal to do. It's a little immoral when you know that that person, that amount of money won't, it's not a sustainable amount of money. Right, right. Unless that person is planning on moving to the Rust Belt. Yeah, basically. It's not going to do them much basically. good. And you can't move to the Rust Belt and pay your fare right, to get there right. <laughs> with that amount of money. So I, I think informing consumers, which is, which is part of what the suite uh, intends to do, and making landlords more accountable for these deals that they're making so that people can make intelligent decisions. Is, 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 the, is the premise and basis for that suite mm-hmm. of bills, which I'm proud to sponsor. So I want to ask you about uh, something else, which is the Weeksville Heritage Center, um, which overlaps your district. And it's an incredibly important historical center that is in danger of closing. So maybe for our viewers who don't know about Weeksville, could you tell us a little bit about it and talk about what is being done to save the Weeksville Heritage Center? So Weeksville was one of the first African-American settlements here in New York. And the, the, the Heritage Center is developed around this row of what's called the Tenafly houses, which were the actual homes that settlers lived in when they first came to the city. So it was a, it was a place where African-Americans were able to thrive. The land is kind of sacred because business development and those kinds of things happened uh, there first. We were able to preserve the Tenafly houses, which I think is about three or four, is still left in pristine condition. And around it, we built the museum, which is the Weeksville Heritage Center, which is an ode to that period and other periods in this country's history around African-American success. Um, it's a lead gold building, um, which means it comes with the standards uh, greater than any other building, energy and those kinds of things. I frequent it. My children frequent it. It's, it's directly in the heart of Crown Heights, and its significance culturally to African Americans and immigrants is, is, is important. So at the council, I am on leadership, I am on finance, and I'm on the budget negotiation team. And as one of my budget priorities, I've posed that we as a council commit a certain amount of funds to this institution, which I'm negotiating with the speaker right now to do. I'm glad to hear that because it is such an important part of African-American heritage in Brooklyn. And it sounds like it's in really dire straits that it could close as soon as this summer if something isn't done. Councilmember, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Ramadan Mubarak. It's Ramadan, and we thought, what better time to talk about the need for more nuanced media representation of Muslim Americans and the new Hulu series that's trying to effort just that. Welcome back, the crew. Um, Why don't we just start with a quick intro for our viewers who might have forgotten who you guys are. Shireen, we'll start with you. Hi, I'm Shireen Bargi, and I'm one of the producers of the show. Thank you for having me. Isabel. Hi, I'm Isabel, and I'm the associate producer. Hi, I'm Mira, and I edit the podcast for the show. Thanks for being back on the show, you guys. Always a pleasure. Who's seen the show, Rami? Uh, I have. I've seen like 
six episodes. Okay. Yeah, I've seen six episodes too. I haven't. I saw the billboard that's on decal. Excellent. I watched the first episode in advance of this segment. Um, So maybe for people who don't know what this show is about, Shireen, can you tell us what is Rami? So Rami is essentially a story of a Muslim Egyptian American guy in his 20s. And a lot of people are saying that it's a show about him trying to grapple with his religion. But honestly, the way I see it, it's about him grappling with people who are grappling with his religion. Mm. So that's my way of putting it. But yeah, so he's from New Jersey. And yeah, he's like what? He's in his 20s. He's he's like 20s. He's pretty. He's a millennial. He's like a real millennial. He um, dates. He doesn't drink. He kind of like he's customized Islam for himself in a way that he does some stuff. Like, for instance, he has premarital Mm -hmm. sex, but he doesn't, for instance, drink or smoke weed or do drugs. And yeah, in the pilot episode, he's been dating a white girl named Chloe, who is played by Anna from Pen15. So uh, well done. Yeah. It, was a, it was a delight yeah. to see her back on the screen. Oh, true. Um, I mean, and who hasn't dated a white girl named Chloe, you know? I think that. <laughs> who among us? I think that's true, right? <laughs> it, it, what's great is that he mentions that he's dating someone named Chloe, and it goes without saying that she's white. All of his right. friends are like, what are you doing dating a white girl? <laughs> and then <laughs> sure enough, it. like in the next scene, she no, comes on. No and brown she's, person names their kid Chloe. I think that's true. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, she they, they have a confrontation, a late night confrontation, because he is checking to make sure there are no holes in the condom that they've just used. And she's like, what are you doing? And it comes out then that he is a more observant Muslim than she but thought. That's, not, that's him just covering his bases. That's got nothing to do with him being Muslim. No, no. Like, but yeah. she, but he says, or she says to him, I thought that you were Muslim in the same way that I'm Jewish. Oh. Right. Mm. Which is sort of this idea of like secular Jews who, you know, maybe celebrate high holidays, but don't believe in God. And that's not him. Is that right, Mira? I'd say Rami is someone who really spends like the entirety of the season grappling with like his own religious guilt and not being a good enough Muslim, struggling to come to terms with his desire to like live the life of a 20 year old man, having sex with whoever he wants, going out, having a good time, but, you know, really struggling to reconcile it with his own religious sentiments and like, you know, the pressures from his religious family. In that sense, I feel like this isn't really necessarily a show for someone like me. I think when I was watching it, I so wanted to feel like the characters and the stories that they were depicting were relatable. And I realized, like, you know, maybe about three episodes in, I was like, well, okay, the bottom line is this isn't made for a Muslim or an Arab like me, and that's fine. And I really, I think once I watched it, I wanted to talk to Shireen about it because I was like thinking, you know, I didn't find it particularly relatable. I don't think that means it shouldn't exist just because I didn't find it relatable. But I realized that it does echo the experience of a lot of people, a lot of Arab Americans and Muslims who are living in this country. Mm-hmm. Shireen, right? did you did you think that that was true? Do you think that Rami is made for a non-Muslim American audience? I grew up in Iran, and religion is very much like forced onto people there. But the pe- but the people are really secular, you know. And I feel like in my family, everyone was pretty chill. Like we had people who didn't drink, we had people who did drink. You know, everyone kind of did their thing. And that's what I really appreciate about Rami. I feel like when I moved to America, to New York, and, you know, like I'd go to parties and people wanted to pour me some wine and I'd be like, actually, I don't drink. People would be like, what? Like, you're in America now. Like, you can drink here. And I was like, I know. I could have drank in Iran. You're free now, Shireen. You're free (laughs) now. And so I basically, I was so frustrated with these questions that I 
you know, I, like once or twice, they just said, you know, I used to be an alcoholic. And people respected me so much. And were like, that's, oh, okay. Wow. That's fucking funny. People, it's messed up because it shows that people respect right. recovering alcoholics More in a way that they, they don't. Oh, yeah. Muslim. They're that's like, they don't think up. like yeah. something, they think something's wrong with you if right. you're not drinking because of like some value you have. Right. But if you say that, no, you know, or, you it, know, I'm pregnant. It's an addiction. Yeah, and it's an addiction. Yeah. And then people are like, oh, okay. Oh, well, sorry. that's something that you, you know? can't help where, you know, as opposed to religion, which you can totally help. Yes, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, yeah. I think I come across this sentiment a lot, though, of like what you're describing of people who are from maybe like Muslim countries moving to the West or like having been brought up here and really feeling um, absolutely shocked by the idea that like someone would actively choose not to drink and like actually yeah. choose to follow these things. I definitely come from a family like that, you know? And and that's why, that's why. A family I, like, like what? Like that would. Maybe judge someone for not drinking, for like being adherent to religious mm -hmm. ethics and like code like that. Mm -hmm. And I've chosen to make a conscientious effort to not continue that sort of sentiment that like my family has. And I, I think it's messed up that you've had to like encounter that. Oh, so many from Iranians who came, right. who were like, listen, we, we were in it with you. People are repelled then. fundamentally. Yeah, people are people pe repelled. They feel they feel scarred, I think, in a lot of ways. You know, even even if they're removed, like maybe they're second gen, they, they mm -hmm. have like their parents' trauma to go off on and, and, and it just goes to show how many how many people who identify as Muslim, whether seriously or not, like want nothing to do with it when they move here. I don't know if yeah. that's tangential, but well, No, I know, get what you're saying. I think there's there's something to be said about organized religion in general mm -hmm. being alienating yeah. um right now specifically. I do find that the adherence to like certain types of behavior dictated by religion is sort of like looked down upon in a way, mm. in a way that other like behavior dictated by any other thing isn't. Well, I think but when you look like, at like the history of organized religion, we can sure. blame most terrible, most wars, terrible wars on it. Yeah. And especially at a time right now when I think progressives are feeling embattled by sort of an anti-scientific um, you know, faith-based community that's like, you know, mm. climate change isn't real or yeah. you don't deserve the right to exist because uh, my, as a trans person, because my religion says so, sure. that it becomes hard to distinguish from... Like spirituality. Right. Or, or religions that like aren't totally shitty. <laughs> right. No, <laughs> Or totally. like a type Abs of religiosity absolutely. that isn't totally shitty and one that actually is like totally fine and makes people, you know, feel a sense of community and that they're part yeah. of something bigger than themselves and spirituality and all that. Yeah, but the sense that like, like Shireen, like somebody would be judgmental of your like own personal decision not to drink at a party just seems like so far beyond the mark right. of being like yeah I like fundamentally disagree with like the Catholic Church dismissing pedophilia uh, right. in the right. ranks and like conflating it to this it's like so mm. well, it's like I don't judge me, people you know? when I take friends to like the Iranian the Persian restaurant down the street mm. and they don't have kebabs i don't say that because they're vegetarian <laughs> i'm not i don't judge them for that you know right. like it's their decision not to eat meat mm -hmm. and it's based on like a principle or value mm -hmm. they have and i have to learn to respect that yeah. you know as long as they're not forcing that on me and as long as i'm not forcing my values on them mm -hmm. we should all learn to live you know the, like ultimate you do you situation. yeah right but a lot of countries like don't believe that you know yeah, like a lot of european sure. countries are like yes of course we welcome people from other countries and once you are here we're going to require you to adapt 
and yeah. give up some of your customs that don't gel with our customs. And that was the whole deal with like the burkini in France. That's right. Yeah, or, or like the headscarf ban. Exactly. The hijab ban. Right. You know, they're like, you can be here, but you have to be like us. Exactly. We uh, welcome you. have to you, be a good but Muslim. But you must assimilate. I think this is a driving theme throughout Rami, in fact. Talk yeah. to me a little bit about the 9-11 episode, because I know that you guys both found it to be deeply affecting. Shireen, mm-hmm. what, what happens in this episode? So, um, spoilers alert, the episode starts by Rami being about like 12, like a 12-year-old. We see the the events of 9-11 through the eyes of a 12-year-old Rami. And that day starts with him trying to masturbate but failing. And then he goes to school. He walks with his friends to school. And he, as he's going back to class, you hear the news. And you hear the kids being shocked. And then on the TV, uh, it shows the, the airplanes TV hitting. Towers. Wow. The towers, mm. and then this girl in front of him turns around and says that my mom works there. Cut to his family putting an American flag at their door, which is something that a lot of Muslims felt like they had to do after 9-11. My aunt did that as well, just to say that, you know, like, we're not one of them. I'm a good Muslim. I'm a good yeah. Muslim. Right. I'm American. Uh-huh. And then in the middle of the night, he wakes up and he hears a noise. And he goes into his kitchen and he finds Osama bin Laden, you know, rifling like, through his fridge, wondering where the whipped fridge. cream is. <laughs> yeah, and with a bowl of strawberries, what? and he basically is eating strawberries. And he ha- he ends up having this like really surreal discussion with Osama bin Laden, and it's something that it, it's just so bizarre, but also so poignant. Right. That whole conversation that Osama bin Laden is trying to justify what he did, and then you know, like Osama bin Laden is trying to like manipulate him and say that you shouldn't be living here. They, you don't fit in. You haven't even masturbated. You know, you <laughs> lied about masturbating. Uh-huh. And he just, he's like, no, I'm not like you. I'm not a terrorist. I don't want to kill people. And he just runs away. Mm. And he wakes up and he finds out that it's he, it's all a dream. Oh, and he had a wet dream. dream. It's all a dream. Yeah. Mira, what about this episode resonated with you? It's a good question. I really have to think about it because I actually, I, I didn't, I don't love this show. The bottom line is like there wasn't, I think looking back, looking back in my experience viewing it now, like I knew that was meant to be an impactful episode, but I sort of left it, it sort of left me feeling kind of cold. Like I thought the Osama bin Laden scene was like a little too weird and not weird in a way where I was like, oh wow, they're really trying something different and I feel like they're getting at something, but weird in a way that I was like, no, this makes you, un- this makes you uncomfortable. I don't really get what's going on. Like this doesn't seem like very well scripted. And that's another problem I have with the show. I don't believe it's effectively scripted. I think it looks nice. I think they're shooting it with good cameras. I have a tweet that I'd like to read because I think it really captures like at least part of what I feel about the show. To the Twitter. To the Twitter. To the Twitter. In the future, every marginalized community will get a shitty diluted show on Hulu or Netflix that slightly resembles girls in order to appease the defunct masses and progress society. Ooh, it's sick scathing. Burn. It's I disagree, scathing. But no, and that's fair. And I think I, I think there's part of me that also disagrees, but there's part of me that's like it's like um mediocrity being the great neutralizer, and as long as we get or like Arabs get a show like this, then like progress is happening. And mm. you know, we're all, and uh, I think Isabel, yeah. Isabel and I were talking about this before the show, and I think I even maybe stole your line by being like mediocrity is the great neutralizer, I but mean, I'd love if you were to expand. It's true. Yeah. It's just like, everyone's just meeting on like the great journey to the middle. And like the, mi- yeah. the minute that every single like eth- ethnic group and lifestyle gets like a shitty friends-like show, like we've all arrived. You know? Yeah, isn't that actually yeah. the signal of having made it? Yeah. 
not like it's that so you have an amazing yeah. breakout uh, piece of art show. It's that you have like a multicam Some CBS sitcom. Crappy. Well, okay, so your your beef is less with the way that the show deals with the representation of Muslim Americans, and more that you think the show is not good. It's just not good. I just think the show is not good. And I love another that. and another thing is that's a privilege to be able to say, right? Right. And being like, we should, yeah, we should be know? able to be like the show isn't good because at least yeah. we have a show to talk. Exactly. You know, it's, like, it's like the L word. The L word is the not L-word good, is a but it's all, we have. it's all we have. This is very pathetic, Mackenzie. <laughs> It's like a very well, here's the thing: is that is that if if more mediocre shows can get made, yeah. and then eventually there's gonna be a good one, you know? Yeah, that's but fair. Everyone like, into the pool of mediocrity. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, right? that's very like every every yeah yeah. Can I, I bring up that. another point on this though? Just about just generally the scripting of the show and the way it's produced. There was not one, and I, you, Shreen, you and I definitely covered it when we were talking about this um, like a week ago. Yeah. But there was not one point when I was watching where I forgot that it was written by a man. Yeah, and like there are two episodes dedicated. To I think his like mother and his sister. Love his mother character. By the mother yeah, character is good, and mother. there are certain characters that are like flushed out very nicely and are funny and 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 even familiar to a certain degree. Like in a show that I found very alienating at times, like there were certain characters I glommed onto. The mother was definitely one of them, but it really is apparent to me that that he was yeah. the one writing the show, and I kind of wanted it to be because I didn't mm. want. I I just felt constantly reminded that I was like, oh, this is his voice. I really see that it's coming through. But don't worry, Mira. If this trend continues, we will also get a mediocre show written <sighs> by a Muslim American woman. That's what so we need. Then we'll have arrived. Yeah. That's, maybe, that's representation. Maybe we'll close it out by, Shereen, having you read this tweet yes. that a friend of yours uh, put out into the world on to the, the occasion Twitter. of Ramadan. Yes, so my friend wrote this um, on Ramadan. Ramadan Kareem to my Muslims, my fasting Muslims, my non-fasting Muslims, my wanted fast but can't Muslims, my don't want to but have to pretend Muslims, my Muslims fasting alone, my slacker Muslims, my sometimes Muslims, my failed Muslims, my trying so hard and still f- failing Muslims, my angry Muslims, my sad Muslims, my can't wait for this month to be over Muslims, my can't get out of bed Muslims, my feeling all sorts of feels about this month Muslims. My fighting to be seen to be seen as Muslim Muslims. My not really Muslim, but racialized as Muslim Muslims. My can't bring their partner to the mosque Muslims. My love of God and love of love Muslims. Ramadan Kareem to you, to us, my loves. May the month be kind. May our ummah be kind. May we be kind to each other and ourselves and bask in the kindness our creator has prom- promised us. Amin. I thought that was so beautiful. It really is. It's one of my favorite things. We'll leave it there then. Thank you guys for joining me once again. Of course. Thank you. That's the show for today. If you liked what you heard, the best way to show it is to share your Hulu password with us and review 112BK on iTunes. Also, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. 112BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 